Good morning to all of you on this beautiful day in an air-conditioned chapel. <laughs> Quite a departure from the last couple of weeks. We're grateful for everything that we have, but maybe some of us are a little more grateful we have air today. So let's go over a few announcements. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Nehemiah 6, verse 9. Today is our communion. Following the worship hour, we'll take 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music, celebrate the Lord's table. There will be no evening service. Our prayer meeting, Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. I would uh, encourage all of you to try and make it out. There is strength in numbers, and when we, we pray as a group, uh, I think the blessings are, are, are for us to have. Uh, you see Andrea's contact number uh, for the prayer chain, uh, deficit in the bulletin. Uh, you'll see that in the bottom left of the insert. Our new acts and facts are, are here for August. Uh, care package collection uh, continues for the soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, Dale and Pam's grandson, I think all of you know by now, Jacob is in Afghanistan with his unit. There's 25 <coughs> men and women in his group. So if you're led to, uh, we can contribute. I think we've got a box out in the foyer there. Uh, personal hygiene needs, things like that, uh, box cookies, just things that remind uh, the soldiers of home. Takes a little bit of the sting away from the separation. As a former military man myself, I know what it's like to get a care package from home. It's, it's a wonderful thing, and uh, uh, I think it uh, would really lift their spirits. We work together on this, and it could be done. And finally, if you are the last person to leave the church building, please check to make sure all the lights are turned off on all the floors and all doors are locked. Uh, Claire May has mentioned to us a couple of times that she's come in to do cleaning and the doors have been unlocked. So let's, let's keep a, an eye on that. Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of 2 Samuel. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, and that would be page 480 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us as we join our hearts in prayer? Brendan, would you lead us in prayer this morning? Dear Father, we just come before you today. We thank you for another day on your earth. We thank you for this opportunity to freely assemble together, Lord. Father, we thank you for the air conditioning and all of the other things that you give us that make our lives easier. Father, we just pray that you're with us today. Please bring the words to Pastor. Please be with us as we listen. Please open our hearts to your message today, Lord. Father, we just pray that we take this message with us away from this building today. Carry it with us through our lives. Father, please continue to be with us each day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I have a couple of prayer requests that I would like you to consider. Uh, first of all, uh, Della will be having knee replacement surgery tomorrow at about 1.30 in the afternoon, correct? Okay, uh, keep, keep her in mind on that. Donovans are on the road, they're on their way back from Wisconsin, uh, visiting their, their daughter and their grandkids. Clayton's are at the hospital this morning with Laura's mother. I don't know the circumstances, uh, but uh, they could not be here this morning, so. And our brother George McLeod is still home recovering with the amputation of his uh, right big toe. So keep all these folks, uh, brothers and sisters, in your prayers, if you will. Thank you. We take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 378. 378 in the brown. Red Trinity. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Red Trinity. Thank you, Claire May. I read it, and then I told you wrong. 378 in the red.
is a congregation that picked hymns, so if anyone um, besides my daughter has a hymn, I will gladly call on you if you give me a reason why you like the hymn. And I said besides my daughter, so put your hand down. And only because she, she cho I chose her last week. I'm not just being mean mom. <laughs> so anyone else have a... Jess. Okay. Thank, that's the title, Have Thine Own Way. <clears throat> That's what these two were saying. That wasn't me. They said at the same time. 371 Brown. 371 in the Brown. <coughs> and um, a reason for this, this hymn this morning, Jess? Seven one three hundred and seventy one.
Our scripture reading for this morning will be taken from the book of Nehemiah 6, <coughs> verses 1 through 9, and that would be page 757 in your pew Bible. And would you stand with us when you're ready? When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then, the fifth time, Sanballat set his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even set appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Father in heaven, may you bless this reading of this word, bless it to our hearts, and add to your glory. In the name of Christ, amen. You take your red hymnals again and turn to number 350, 350, <clears throat> 350 in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 6. Last Lord's Day, we studied Nehemiah's integrity. His own practice became the capstone and illustration of how God's people are to conduct themselves with one another when taught by the Spirit of God. We as the people of God must be different from the people of the world in the way that we think and in the way that we act. We saw that God counts his children not through some biological link to godly ancestors, but through being of the same philosophy and attitude and the godly spirit that is found and was found in Jesus Christ. To claim sonship to God, one must do the works of God. To claim discipleship to Jesus, one must obey the teachings of Jesus. And anything less is a bogus claim. We drew out Nehemiah's example. He didn't exercise his right of the governor's tax and tribute over the people. The former governors bled the people dry. They have a time of famine, and they, they still tax them very, very heavily. Nehemiah became the people's benefactor, feeding as many as 800 people a day at his own table. You say, wow, he had, must have had money. Well, he was the governor. He did have money. But notice how he spent his money. He spent it on the people. His motive is given for us in chapter 5, verse 15. He says, out of reverence for God, he did these things. We learn a number of valuable lessons. The exercise of one's right is not the first order of business for Christian servants, but at the relinquishing of our rights. The best of service does not come from doing the minimal, but from going the extra mile, going beyond what is expected of you. And the third lesson we learn is that the favor of God is bestowed upon his servants for what good they have done. Not good intentions, not good words, but what have you done? That's what counts. Doers of the word, James says, when you come to the New Testament. Now today we come back to the building project Nehemiah and his people were involved with and the ploy that his enemies used to try to kill him (laughs) and kill the work on the wall. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, uh, Nehemiah's example to us. In so many ways he illustrates the fidelity that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. Nehemiah was a man of integrity. We studied that the other week. He was not easily deceived, not easily fooled, nor was he lazy or indifferent to the problems of life, the problems of his people. And he worked hard for God and God's glory. Pray that we might learn these lessons from the Old Testament. These Old Testament saints have something to teach us about integrity and living for God and trusting God and working for God and loving God and all the various things that 
we are emboldened to do by the gospel in the new covenant age. We find these examples in the old covenant age. Thank you, dear Lord. May you honor yourself this day. And may your truth be lifted up in Christ's name. Amen. Our text is in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. And we're looking at the enemy's ploy. The last time we looked at this wall that the Jews were constructing around Jerusalem, it was only built to one half its height, chapter 4, verse 6. In chapter 5, Nehemiah was forced to deal with internal problems concerning some of his own people taking advantage of their countrymen in times of famine. In verse 1 of our text, Nehemiah says... I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it. Though the gates remained to have their doors set in place. This means, brethren, that internal crisis or no, the work of the wall continued. And I believe it's worthy of our notice that when we're serving God in the corporate setting of Christ's church, The work has many facets, many needs, many directions, all going on at one at the same time. It's not piecemeal. It's not, okay, we'll do this, and then we'll move to that. Okay, and then we'll move to that. No, it's all going on at the same time. We cannot single out one work as though the others didn't matter or were of lesser importance. A church that prays is essential to the success of the gospel ministry. Youth programs are essential. Bible studies, outreach ministries, visitation, counseling, conference, women's ministries, men's ministries, missions. This is just a little church, but we have facets, fingers in all of these pies. Involved in the work of God. Nehemiah kept right on building the wall while he dealt with the people's personal needs. And I think we have to do the same. A hand on the trowel, another on the sword, that was him. A guard on the wall at night, a trumpeter by his side in the case of danger. All the bases needed to be covered. and Many willing workers had to do their task. Now we observe from our text that a new threat loomed on the horizon as the wall began to reach completion. With nothing left to do but hang the gates, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem tried a new strategy to halt the work. They sent Nehemiah this message, verse 2. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Ono was in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, also under Nehemiah's jurisdiction. You can see about that in chapter 7, verse 26, verse 37. But if you look 
on a map, Ono is just about as far west as one can go from Jerusalem and still be in Nehemiah's territory. Way out there in the desert. And so Nehemiah began to smell a rat. Why did these other governors want him to travel so far away from Jerusalem? About 30 miles. To us, 30 miles, that's nothing. We have our cars. 30 miles, 30 minutes. But by camel, it was a day's journey. Verse 2 says, They were scheming, to harm me. I mean, if they could just get Nehemiah away from the protection of his walled city, away from the masses of people that were armed in Jerusalem, if they could isolate him, they could assassinate him and be safe across their own borders before anyone of importance had time to react. So Nehemiah became suspicion, suspicious and he refused to go. Some think that he had a network of spies feeding him information on the enemies, but I think that's ridiculous. Nehemiah just considered the source of the invitation. The invitation was from his arch enemies who had recently tried to mobilize an army and attack him. Chapter 4, verse 8. Well, you think he's, these people got a change of heart now? Come on out to the desert. We want to have a little parley with you. <laughs> oh, no, on the further, furthermost western border of his territorial jurisdiction, he, he thought about that and he put two and two together. They're trying to lure me out into the wilderness to kill me. That's what this is all about. You know, when people walk with God, there's a discernment which God gives to them. Remember King David and Saul? Despite Saul's oath before Jonathan, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. 1 Samuel 19, verse 6. Shortly thereafter, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his javelin. So David never again trusted Saul, even when he sent overtures of friendship. Welcome, you know, we'll have a little talk. When David's son, Solomon, assumed the throne of his father, his prayer to God was this. Give your servant a discerning heart, to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. 1 Kings 3, verse 9. Did you know that lack of discernment is one of the marks of the pagan unbelieving heart? A pagan unbelieving heart does not have discernment about spiritual things. Remember what God said to Jonah? Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. 
Should I not be concerned about that great city, Jonah? What was God saying? He was saying this was a city of unbelieving idolaters who had no discernment with regard to truth. They can't even figure out right from left. And then there are those who are wise in worldly matters, but are ignorant of spiritual matters. Jesus told the Pharisees and the Sadducees in his day, you know how to interpret the appearances of the sky, in other words, to predict the weather and all of those various things, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Matthew 16, verse 3. Lack of discernment spiritually is described in the Bible as a characteristic of children. No big thing there. Deuteronomy 1 verse 39 talks about the inability of children to discern. Even the Apostle Paul said that when he was a child... I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned as a child, and when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. That's to be our goal. Children are inexperienced in their reasoning and thinking processes, but when adults are like that, it indicates they haven't grown up. They haven't grown up. The sad thing is that while lack of discernment is the mark of the unbelieving, it is sometimes characteristic of believers as well when they fail to grow up spiritually. In 1 Corinthians text, Paul wrote, of the Corinthian church. Listen to this indictment. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it gladly enough. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you. 2 Corinthians 11 Verse 4 and following. Now you can, <laughs> you can hear it. This text is just saturated with sarcasm by the Apostle Paul. Because the Corinthians were blowing in the breeze with every teacher that came down the pike. They couldn't discern the truth from error. This guy came along said one thing. Oh yeah, that sounds good. And the other person came along might be the direct opposite of what this person said. Oh, that sounds good too. Well, 
They couldn't discern truth from error, right from wrong. They just accepted it all as truth. Even when false apostles came a-knocking at their doors. A life of carnality and sin and refusal to apply oneself to the means of grace will result in this kind of childlike naivete. They believe everything. Discern nothing. You know, the writer of Hebrews chided his people. And he had something to say about the, this very subject that I'm talking about. He says, though by this time you ought to be teachers. You ought to be teachers by this time. Yet you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. He goes on, you need milk and not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 5, verse 12 and following. Simply put, you don't use if you don't use it, you, you, you're going to lose it. Spiritual discernment is the result of spiritual training. Exercising your mind in the scriptures to train yourself to think like God on the issues of life. God's thoughts after him is what theologians say. When we lack discernment into what's right and what is wrong... We're either acting like children because they're inexperienced and untaught or we are acting like pagans who see things only through sin-colored glasses. Either way, we're not where God wants us to be and we're not in a position to avoid the pitfalls and the temptations of error. Well, Nehemiah was not suckered in to Sanballat and Geshem's trap. He was not charmed by their gracious invitation to have a little chit-chat in the desert. He discerned that they were up to no good, so he refused to comply with their request. I'm not coming. Notice reply, verse 3. I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave and go down to you? This business of going down, I've said this before. Jerusalem was built on a hill, a mountain. So when it talks about going up to Jerusalem, it's not talking about going from the southern part of Palestine to the northern part. It's not that. It's literally going up. So when it talks about him coming down to meet with this guy on the plains of Ono, it means literally coming out of the heights and coming down to the plains to meet him there. And he says, I'm, I'm involved in a great project. I cannot go down. Why should I go down to you? I love this. I mean, here Nehemiah asserts that what he is 
presently doing in Jerusalem is a great project worthy of his undivided attention. Have you ever viewed your Christian service, whether it's teaching a class, remodeling the church, helping at the pregnancy center, planting flowers and you're doing yard work around the building, meeting for prayer and Bible study, singing in the choir, serving on the mission committee. Have you ever thought of all those things or one of those things that you're involved in as a great project worthy of your undivided attention? Few do, but I would like you to take a close look at Nehemiah's response and consider his work. Okay, Nehemiah, what is the nature of this great project that you are asserting? Well, he was building a stone wall around Jerusalem. Wow. His work was mortar and stone, wood beams, iron gates. That's what he was doing. He was not involved in an evangelistic crusade in the city. He was not teaching children on the Sabbath. He was not preaching from a pulpit like me today. Yet chapter 5 verse 16 says, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire land. This isn't very spiritual, is it? (laughs) Think about this. Does anyone need the Holy Spirit to work on a wall? Don't pagans build walls every day? Yet the fact that men like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, enemies, wanted the project halted tells me that Nehemiah was in a spiritual battle with the hidden enemies of men's souls. Satan himself, who was using these governors to keep Jerusalem among the dust and the rubble in its humiliation, in its defeat, so that God's glory would never again come to the city bearing his name. Their deceit is in their invitation. Come, let us meet together. This holding out of the olive branch of peace, so to speak, is straight out of the pit of hell. For Paul says of Satan, he masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants, in this case the governors, in Nehemiah's day, it's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14 and 15. I wonder, have you ever thought of the work that you do for God as being of primary importance over all other projects you may want to be involved in or are presently involved in? This is what kept Nehemiah from falling into the trap of the enemy. 
We fall into the trap of Satan when we can be easily dissuaded from the primary duty of our spiritual walk with God and the service we render to him so that his kingdom be established on earth. Thy will be done as it is. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be our goal always. That's our responsibility. Let me say it this way. There are many good things, many good things, which call for our attention as the people of God. We have, for example, to work at a vocation, to earn money, to support our families. Of course, that's a good work. We have to maintain our health through proper diet and rest. That's a good work. We have to be a friend to those who are our friends and help them with their project. That's a good work. We have to further our education or develop hobbies which keep us intellectually alert. That's good work. You're responsible to know what's going on in the news and in our country. We have to take our kids fishing and spend some time with them, playing basketball or whatever. That's a good work. These are all good works, and they're all very necessary. But when it comes to our service for Christ, and when it comes to his work for God, Nehemiah said that he was involved in a great work. Not just a good work. I think few things in life are worthy of the title great. But for the believer, God and his kingdom fall into that category. It's a great work. If God is second rate to you, then many, many good and necessary works will divide your attention and energies and take you away from the great work of serving Christ. Powerful lesson to learn. Nehemiah teaches us that. I'm doing a great work. I can't, <laughs> I'm not coming down to have a little chit-chat with you governors in the plain of Ono. Secondly, Nehemiah sense that his presence in Jerusalem, his involvement in the work, was essential. He says it this way. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Oh, we say, Nehemiah, do I sense a little bit of pride coming through here? Couldn't you hand your trowel to another worker while you met with the governors? Weren't there other foremen on the job who could direct its completion? Well, brethren, this is not pride on Nehemiah's part, but an honest assessment of the key role that he played in the project. If I leave, the work will stop. Period. Wow. And what is more, this is exactly the evaluation of his enemies. That's why they want to lure him out into the desert to kill him. 
They figure with Nehemiah taken out of the picture, the refortification of Jerusalem will come to a grinding halt and things will get back to business as usual. What's business as usual? They will get their governorships back. They will be able to oppress the Israelites again with heavy taxation and tributes. We need to get rid of this one fly in the ointment governor. He's just messing everything up for us. Come on out to the desert to Ono and we'll have a little chit-chat. Let me ask, have you ever really thought of the work that you do for God as being indispensable? I mean, think about that. Do you have the mentality, if I don't do this, whatever the this is, if I don't do this, no one will. There's a sense in which we must think this way. Not in pride, not in pride, not puffing ourselves up as though we're the only one who knows how to do a certain task, but remembering and recognizing that God's work needs workers, doers, the doers and shakers to get things done. If we don't see ourselves as necessary for the work, we will be prone to quit. Ah, let somebody else do it. But that someone else isn't there waiting in the wings. No, they are involved in their area of service, and it would be overly burdensome for them to take on another task. Nehemiah honestly saw that he was the key person in the great project. If he were killed, the enemy would win, and Israel would be swallowed up once again in slavery. I wonder if we enslave God's work by becoming dropouts. Are others holding up their share of the work and your share too? Is that why things kind of slide? Because you're not there doing what you used to do or could do. Sometimes we go into a pity party and say, oh, I'm not needed. They can do that without me. They've got other good teachers. They have good carpenters. Whatever. One day in Israel, a, a man, a wicked, very wicked man named Haman, Haman, H-A-M-A-N, he plotted the genocide of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Yeah, that's quite ambitious. Not knowing, by the way, that Queen Esther was a Jewess. So Mordecai, Esther's cousin, said to Esther, the queen, 
Now, she's kept her racial and spiritual identity a secret. She's married King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. Yeah. Hello. And then you got this Haman guy that's worked out a deal with her husband to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire on a certain day at a certain time. So You can read about it in the book of Esther. So Mordecai, her cousin, who raised her, by the way, because her parents died when she was very young. So from age 12 on, Mordecai, the cousin, raised her. And he put this bug in her ear. Esther, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What? A time is this. So you know, brethren, sometimes timing is everything. It's everything. And so she ordered a fast for all the Jews in the empire. Fast and pray. Fast and pray. Three days. And she says, after three days, I will approach the king. And her words were, if I perish, I perish. You didn't just go be bopping in to see the king, even if he was your husband. You can read about it in the text. You had to go stand in the hallway, the entrance to the king's throne room. And if he didn't raise his scepter to you saying, yes, I see you, you may enter, come. If that didn't happen, you were executed. No one came before the king, not even his his wife, without his permission. And that's why she says, I'll go see him. But if I die, then I die. Sometimes a project is so great, you got to put yourself into it. Nehemiah did that. Esther did that. I mean, the consequences are going to be so terrible that if somebody doesn't step to the plate, there's going to be a lot of people hurt, injured, destroyed, the work of God. The third thing I see in Nehemiah's answer was that he didn't weaken or recant with increased pressure. So what do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 4. It says, four times they, that is the governors, four times they sent the same message. The same message is, come on down to Ono, we're going to have a little chit-chat. And each time I gave them the same answer. I'm involved in a great project and I cannot come down to you. You know, if you ask a person to do something once, that's a fair request. Ask them the same thing four times. Now you're harassing them. 
Now you're badgering them. But Satan never was a gentleman. Temptation, just because it is temptation, never stops with one solicitation. How strong is your faith? How convinced are you that you're doing what you are doing is a great project? A great project for God which demands your undivided attention. We'll see, says Satan. We'll see. Some people cave in on the first solicitation. No discernment. Others hold out a little longer and so the arguments of the enemy become more persuasive. Verse 5 and following of our text. Or the allurement is made more attractive until they fall. And finally, there are those who see the ploy for what it is. They pray, they resist, and by God's grace, they continue to hold their ground. So, how easily can you be worn down in your resistance to temptation? If you were challenged to do something wrong one time, would you say no? Yeah, okay. Well, what if you had someone bugging you two, three, four times or more? Would your loyalty to Christ confirm your stand in righteousness? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. People of strong faith are not born that way. They are trained that way. By being students of the scripture to such a degree that God's word is hid in their heart, keeping them from sinning against God, says David, Psalm 119, verse 11. None of us are strong without Christ. He is the one who keeps us faithful by his spirit. But he does not preserve us magically. It's not magic. Rather, it is as we pray, as we study the Bible, as we implement its principles, as we maintain fellowship with other saints who can encourage us, these things God blesses, and the result is perseverance. Well, when Sanballat saw that his fourth request to Nehemiah to meet with him, received the same negative answer. He changed tactics. The fifth time, Sanballat sent his messenger. He sent with him with an unsealed letter, the content of which is given to us in verse 6 and 7. What does it say? Let's read it. It is reported among the nations... And Geshem says it's true. Oh, well, then, if Geshem says it's true, must be true, right? That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. That's why you're doing it. You're getting ready to revolt, see? Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. 
Wow. <laughs> what is this? Well, it is an attempt at blackmail based upon a fabricated story which Geshem had a part in concocting. These governors are suggesting that if King Artaxerxes should hear that Nehemiah was setting himself up as king in Judah and that the Jews were planning to revolt, it would not go very well for Nehemiah and his people. So come, they say, let us confer together. This was a last-ditch effort to get Nehemiah to come away from Jerusalem for a summit meeting with the governors. And if he did not comply, they would seal that letter, send it by courier to the king. You know, the devil has more than one scheme up his sleeve. There are hundreds of tricks in his bag. If pleading doesn't work, he'll try intimidation. If intimidation doesn't work, he'll try blackmail, which is what this was. There's no end to the wickedness he can devise. Paul says, we're not unaware of his schemes. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 11, I hope that's true. It was true of Nehemiah. I hope it's true of us as well. Not every temptation to sin is obvious. Some are more subtle. This one, blackmail, was subtle. Here's how it's supposed to work. Verse 9. They were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. Playing on someone's fears, allowing the fears to eat them up, inside and so traumatize them that they couldn't go with the work is a whole lot more subtle than trying to lure the leader into the wilderness so you can assassinate him. But the effect's the same. Nehemiah dead or Nehemiah discredited by false reports is just as effective. In both scenarios, Nehemiah's influence would be neutralized in the great project would come to a great end. What do you do if someone spreads false rumors about you? Worse, what if they fabricate a completely wicked lie and then they threaten to leak it to the authorities? How do you handle blackmail? You know the story isn't true. But you're enough of a realist to know that there are people just itching to believe the lie and set you tumbling off your pedestal. It's out of jealousy for your godliness and they envy your relationship with God. So they want to believe the worst when they hear it and they pass the gossip on to others to discredit your good name. So again, I ask, what do you do? Look at Nehemiah, verse 8. I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. 
You're just making it up out of your head. I love that. <laughs> oh, my. His response is twofold. A simple denial. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. I'm not scheming to be king and to revolt against the Persian government. And secondly, he called Sanballat, get it now, a liar. You are just making it up out of your head is the same as saying you're lying. That's a strong answer. And it's the only answer Nehemiah could give. Here's what he did not do. Nehemiah did not summon his own courier, try to reach King Artaxerxes with the truth before Sanballat got to him with the lie. He didn't knuckle under to the blackmail and go out to Ono to confer with Sanballat in person. He didn't stop the building project while he conferred with his adversaries. He didn't lay awake at night with fear over all the damage Sanballat's story would do to him. He didn't go public to the newspapers. He didn't try to explain his side of the story. He didn't run scared. He simply denied the charges to Sanballat via his messenger and called him a liar. You're a liar, Sanballat. And when his fear might have gotten the best of him with a runaway imagination and cripple his work on the wall, he prayed to God, Now strengthen my hands, God. Chapter 6, verse 9. David prayed similarly. Listen to my cry for help, says David. My king and my God, for you I pray. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Excerpts from Psalm 5. Boy, these are powerful prayers. These are effectual prayers. God has seen Sanballat's intimidation and he has heard Gershom's lies. Nehemiah doesn't have to defend himself. He owes Sanballat no explanation and so he doesn't give one. When you have this kind of integrity before God, your enemies will be fruitless in their effort to bring you down. Nehemiah's righteousness was well known in the province. Anyone who would have to be a fool to believe that this concocted story about him putting himself forward as a king. Nobody's going to believe that about Nehemiah. David could say, and he did say, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. 
according to my integrity, O Most High, O righteous God, who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. Psalm 7, verse 8 and 9. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, powerful as it is. I love this story about Nehemiah. What a man of character. He faced more than uh, we often face. Yet he did it with such integrity. He wasn't frightened into stopping what God had called him to do. He wasn't intimidated by Geshem. Sanballat, or any of these other guys. He just kept his eyes on Christ. Kept his ears attuned to the word of God. Kept plugging on in obedience. He knew that God had called him to restore Jerusalem from the rubble, and restoration is exactly what he did. Help us to be like that, Lord. Not to be intimidated by the snide remarks and sometimes not so snide remarks that the world dumps on us. When the devil hates us like he does hate us and he stirs people up to resist the truth of your word, make us bold, not arrogant, but bold in declaring what is truth. And give us the integrity not to crumble under the weight of multiple, multiple, multiple false accusations. We bless thee, Lord, for protecting us, keeping us in the palm of your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Our closing hymn is from 472. We're just going to take a short break after we sing this and regather for the Lord's table. 472 for right now in the brown hymnal. And this hymn goes with, along with the sermon as you can see. The battle is the Lord's. Uh, Nehemiah knew that. The battle is the Lord's. It's his task. I remember Jesus' words that we're not to take our own revenge, right? He tells us that in the New Testament, but leaves room for the wrath of God. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to protect yourself. You just have to live righteously for the Lord. 472, let's stand. Stretch.
10-minute break. Regather when you hear the music. 